want to start with a parable today, and I ask that you pay attention to the details, not because the parable is so good, but because the details have something to say about the text that is before us here today. The year is 1883, New York City. A wealthy railroad tycoon hears that a bank is for sale in Deadwood, South Dakota. His son, William, is a recent graduate of Yale University, and he has the cultural and the business training to represent his father's interests. But Deadwood, 1883, is the wild, wild west. It's a dangerous town flooded with vice. So this man sends a bodyguard along with his son, a man named Jack, a gruff, uncouth, uneducated social misfit. But he's strong as an ox, good with a pistol, and itching for a reason to use it. So William the son and Jack the enforcer take a train to South Dakota with a briefcase full of money. They arrive in Deadwood, settle into a hotel, but the sensual allures of the hotel saloon and other establishments around the town overcome Big Jack. And soon he has wasted a large amount of the money in the briefcase. He's alienated every decent citizen in Deadwood, and he's landed in jail. The town wants him gone. William is utterly disgusted with Jack's behavior. He's angered that this man has jeopardized his father's bank deal. But left to his own, William takes a few liberties as well. He eats some meals at the hotel, but he refuses to pay for them. Too inferior for his sophisticated taste, he'll not drop a dime on this food. Then on the night before purchasing the bank... He gets pulled into a poker game, loses a bunch of money, and gets drunk. When day dawns, Jack is let out of jail to meet William at the bank. As the negotiations begin, it's clear that the sellers distrust Jack. But Jack treats them with some measure of respect, despite his horrendous English. He tries to negotiate the deal, not having any idea what he's doing, not realizing how often he's offending the other party. But Jack was supposed to just stand in the shadows and say nothing. He has to step in here and try to negotiate because William is drunk and is abusive to everyone in the room. Well, the bank owners finally reached their limits. They stopped the negotiations. They put Jack and William on a train back to New York City and say, good riddance, finding out, as they do, that they had actually spent too much money to ever buy the bank anyway. It was an utterly failed mission. The bank owners wire a detailed report to William's father, who meets them when they arrive home in New York City. William's father is angry with his son, and he lays into him as he walks into the room. But William quickly accuses Jack. That uneducated, uncharactered slob you sent with me ruined everything. He turned the whole town against us before we even reached the negotiating table. He spent so much money we could never buy it. 
And his father says, and you arrived at the negotiations drunk. And you alienated people. And you squandered money as well. I got drunk one night. Jack was drunk every night of the week. I didn't pay for a few meals. He alienated the entire town. Yes, and Jack treated the bankers with more dignity than you did during the negotiations. Dad, I'm your son. I went to Yale. I've studied how to handle myself in social settings. Why are you judging me? Jack is the real problem, not me. Okay, the script is unfinished and you have to finish it. What's Dad say? It's really not hard, is it? pretty obvious how he responds to him and what he would say to him in this situation. If you're the father or you're writing this play and you have to finish it up, what do you say? What words do you put in the father's mouth to close this matter up? Does it matter that William did less wrong than Jack? Is that really an issue here in the failure to buy the bank? Does it matter that William went to Yale and knew better than Jack how to relate to people in the social setting? It's the facts. Does it matter? Did it accomplish anything? Does it matter to the mission itself that he is the tycoon's son? Of course not. No, no, and no. It's all pretty obvious. And yet we really struggle when the Bible looks right into our face and says, you are William. You are William. William's hypocrisy wraps its tentacles around all of our hearts. By comparing ourselves among ourselves, by failing to come to honest terms with our own failure, to honor God's truth, we point the finger, we wear the mask, and we spend our days comparing. It's useless. Useless to the mission, useless to what our Father thinks as He relates to us, and yet we find it so natural. And perhaps no group of people struggled more with this tendency than the Jews of the Apostle Paul's day. Now let's think of it in biblical terms. God has chosen Israel. They are His chosen people. He has entrusted to them the divine law. We looked at it last week. We we talked about that law being like a flashlight in the dark. I mean, it's a gift. It's a great aid to know from your Creator what is right and what is wrong and to be guided by it. Israel had that trust and there weren't translations of the Bible. You're a Gentile, you didn't read the Bible. You didn't read Hebrew. God gave to His people in their tongue His written revelation that showed them what was right and what was wrong, how they should live, how they could prosper. This is a tremendous trust. Now, to the Gentiles, He gives to all people general revelation. Not written revelation, but the general revelation, the natural revelation that we see. This world that has been made, people can see it and know that there is a great God. We looked at that in chapter 1. As Paul came to verse 29, he goes past some of the sins that might mark the Gentiles uniquely, 
And he writes then in verse 29 of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parent of parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And what is he? What how the Jews hear this? Not a Christian Jew. I don't think that's the idea here. Verse 17 of chapter 2 will make this very clear. But just the, the Jews who saw themselves as the chosen people of God, having been entrusted with the written Word of God, how are they hearing verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1? They're celebrating. Yes. We know God's truth. We know that He is the Creator. We understand sexual fidelity and its importance. That sexuality is given by our Creator according to His design for the good of His people. We reject the ways that it is used by this godless world. And we celebrate all of this list of godless wickedness that the Gentiles continue to practice. This scathing judgment of a godless world in chapter 1 is now directed at the morally educated Jews. The morally educated rejoice in what they see, but as the Jews cheer God's wrath against the godless world, it's almost like Paul has set up here a boomerang. He's thrown it out, it's gone its distance, and now it's coming back right at them and it's going to hit them between the eyes. And in a different way, and it is a different way, and we'll have to do some work to bridge the gap to our lives, but in a different, in a, but in a different but related way, we too are among the morally educated. We are among the religiously involved. You got up today, you made the travel over here, and here you are, giving a significant portion of your week to consider the Bible and what it says to pray, to sing songs of the new life. You, you are religiously involved. We are Bible-trained people, in fact. Much of what has been going on here this morning already and now, but also what's gone before, we are studying the Scriptures and coming to understand them and know them and you see the beauty of God's ways and His purposes and you look at a world that's so bent against it. And you rejoice. You thank God for His Word. You thank God for His wisdom. But Paul speaks to us in a sense. It is by way of application. He's talking here primarily to Jews that do not yet know Christ. But I think there are principles that we can draw out of this that will help us weed out judgmental hypocrisy. And it has a hold on every one of us. The first principle that we find here is to avoid the death trap of religious presumption. To avoid the death trap of religious presumption. This is where he now addresses the Jews. He's spoken about the Gentile godlessness, this fallen, vile world in all of its depravity. But now says in chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. The morally educated break God's law just as the morally uneducated do. He speaks here of those of you who judge. You are judges. That's not wrong necessarily. He doesn't mean judgment in the wrong sense of the word, but he means those who can stand back and say, this is morally wrong. 
I know what God says. I know how this world is living and this is wrong. You who do that, you who can take God's word, put it up against this world and say that's wrong. You people, therefore, have no excuse. That is really jarring. It it doesn't even seem to follow. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Wait a minute. Who are you talking to here? What do you mean that we don't have any excuse? I think the way to answer that kind of strange development, he's talking about these godless people and then saying, therefore, you have no excuse, is probably linking back to verse 18. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, so you too have no excuse, I think is the idea. Continuing verse 1, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You see the word for there at the middle of verse 1. For Paul is providing an explanation for his assertion that the one judging is without excuse. And what is the explanation? You do the same things. You practice these same things. Chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. That's you as well. Now let's get this straight. Paul says, verse 2, let's get it straight. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You're not wrong about that. We get this. We know the Bible is right in what it says. We know that God is justified to be angry with those who break His law. He's rightly angered when people look all day long at His creative beauties and they say there's no Creator. He's not there. God is right to condemn those who take the gift of sexuality and twist it into their own selfish ends. God is right to condemn greed and jealousy and murder and gossip and slander and ruthless disregard for others and the like. End of chapter 1. All of that is right. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But here's the point. Where we agree there, verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Isn't that kind of what William's dad is going to say? Accusing Jack of drunkenness is to accuse yourself of becoming drunk when you did. You did the same thing. The point was never for you to be better than Jack and Deadwood. The point was to fulfill my expectations of you, my son. And so God speaks to us. The point is not for you to live in this life and be better than your neighbor. The point is for you to live on this earth to the glory of God, your Father. It's how we think about it. How we perceive it, where the danger lies. This is what Paul is saying to Israel, God's son. Verse 4, as he continues, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And here in the outline point is the idea of the presumption, that we need to watch this and not allow ourselves to be placed in this situation. God is long-suffering. He is patient with sinners. He's not lackadaisical. He's not disinterested or lazy. He is slow to judge because He wants sinners to come to repentance. And here is a key idea here in chapter 2. 
repentance. Grab on to that thought. Repentance is a change of mind that leads us to humbly turn from our sin and begin walking in right direction. Did you hear it as we sang today? There were words in our songs of humility, of owning our sin, of repenting. That is turning from it and heading in God's direction. That, those songs, as we sung them here this morning, that's the redemptive work of Christ. He's helping us see ourselves and our sin and to own it. That's me. We are so clear-headed, so 2020 when we look at the sins of others, but the work of Christ in our lives shows itself when we see our own sins. Have you come to a place of decisive, overarching repentance in your life? Do you now practice repentance as a way of life? That's an evidence of the presence of God in your life. It's an evidence that you are His child. He brings us to see who we are. He brings us to turn from our sin. He brings us to head in another direction. We've been redeemed from the bondage of sin and repentance is one of the flags that we carry. One of the evidences. I am a sinner who deserves God's wrath. By His grace, I turn from my sin. I seek His forgiveness. And that's really the rest of the book. But certainly leading us to Romans chapter 3. Now remember, Paul is talking directly to Jewish readers here who were placing their hope for eternity in their nationality and in their moral living on some level. Verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath revealed against the godless Gentiles, chapter 1, verse 18 and following. The Jews would rejoice in that message. Now Paul turns it around and says that wrath is being stored up for you as well when you do the same things. Yes, you are God's chosen people. But apart from repentance, you too are the objects of God's wrath which ever builds against you. Paul refers here in verse 5 to the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Manifested not only against Gentiles, as many Jews in Paul's day believed, that it would only be against the Gentiles. Paul takes a different direction. He says, no, it will be against you as well. How foolish for William to think his dad would hold Jack accountable and not him. That's saying God will judge according to the way I compare to the guy that happens to be in my world. Paul is saying this is ridiculous. As the dad would say to William, this is ridiculous. I'm talking to you. And you Jews who have God's word and study what he believes... There is wrath being built up for you on the day that you meet God and don't compare with anyone else, but stand before Him on your own. Wrath is being built up for you as well. So, we must, by way of application, avoid the death trap of religious presumption. 
The idea that we have a special standing with God and He doesn't take into account our sin. The fact that God in His patience continues to endure, seeking to bring people to repentance. We don't take that in the wrong way and believe that we can live with some sort of extra special way out because of our relation with God. Secondly, beginning at verse 6, we find this principle. Affirm that God is an impartial judge. We're seeking to weed out hypocrisy. We avoid the death trap of religious presumption. We recognize that God is an impartial judge. This is Paul's emphasis here, beginning at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. The Bible is consistent. God is always just. God judges us according to our actions. Do we obey Him or do we not obey Him? That's the standard. Positively, this means, verse 7, to those who practice, who by practice and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. Glory, honor, immortality, those are rewards of heaven. To seek such wonders demonstrates a desire to be with God in His presence for eternity. Now we've got to stop here at verse 7 and ask a tough question. To those who by patience and well-doing seek eternity, He will give eternal life. How do you get eternal life? By seeking it. By doing what is right, So Paul is saying. Is he saying that we can be justified by doing good deeds? In one sense, he's saying yes, and in one sense, he's saying no, and there's a pretty big no that's going to follow as the book continues. But what he's saying here is simply establishing that God is a just judge, and what he's going to judge is our faithful obedience to him. It's not going to be multiple standards that he figures out on the fly, depending on who the person is, or in comparison between people. There's one standard, do you obey him? But we can wrongly conclude that since our good works are what God will judge in eternity, that good works can earn heaven for us. And that's a big mistake. Let me illustrate it this way. It's not a perfect illustration, but I think it, it works. It's helpful. You're out in the wilderness. I mean, where no one's around. No cell service. Nobody knows you're there. No one could find you if they look for you. But you're climbing uh, in, in some rocks, and you slip, and you fall 100 feet down this enclosed crevice. And you say, what do I got to do to get out of here? A guide was with you. You both fell that distance. We'll just say that you were let down slowly by a rope, and the rope broke loose from the top or something like that. So you're okay. You can talk and think about it. But the guide says, there's one way up. We can climb this face 100 feet up a solid rock, smooth edge, nowhere to tag in. That's the way up. And you look up and you say, I'm gone. I can't do this. Humanly speaking, there is no way to scale this rock. That is the way out. That is the only way out. It doesn't mean that you can do it. And I, I think, in a sense, that's where Paul is going here. What God will judge when we enter His presence is our works. Verse 6. That is 
the way to God. That is the way to be justified in one sense of speaking. He does not say that our works, however, will justify us. There's an objective, just standard. There is not necessarily a capacity to meet that standard. This is precisely where he's taking us into chapter 3. As we get to chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, and it'd be nice to just take these whole chapters together. There's just a lot of text here, but think about where he's headed. It is here. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Hear it. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And he'll work that out, but that's where he's heading. No one will be justified by works of the law. Remember how we got into this spot? Chapter 1 and verse 17. The just will live by faith. He's not saying anything about faith in chapter 2. He's just saying this is the standard. That wall, that 100 foot wall, that's it. That's what God will judge. That's how you live. It doesn't mean you can. The good news comes later. It's been announced here in chapter 1, but it will come in development later in the book, and that is that Christ can scale that wall, and trusting Him is your way out. There is a way to meet that standard that is given to you by faith. But, Back to the point here, in contrast to the positive outcome, Paul develops now the negative outcome in verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Notice the opposite of glorifying God is self-seeking. The opposite of obeying the truth is obeying unrighteousness. And the outcome, as God judges one's work, is wrath and fury. The judgment of God eternally. We also note here that this judgment starts first with the Jews. That is, God's saving message started with Israel, in some sense. And God's judgment will start with them as well. The Jews believed that they were first in salvation and last in judgment, if it would ever even come. Paul informs them that Israel's priority in the history of redemption follows in a priority in judgment. Where did William's dad start when he got back to New York? With him. He's the son. Is he going to hold Jack accountable? Yes. But where he starts is with his son. So Paul is saying here, that's us, Israelites. God started with us in salvation. He's going to start with us in judgment when we don't meet his standard. When we don't live sinlessly. God's saving message starts there and it ends there. So here's the point, verse 10 but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. That finishes the point, the positive, the negative, flowing together. It's positive, negative, negative, positive, as he lays this out here. But it doesn't matter who you are. Isn't that the whole point? Verse 11, here it is. For God shows no partiality. 
It doesn't matter if you are morally educated or not. It does not matter if you are an Israelite or a Gentile. God's judgment is just. It is without partiality. God will not cut you some slack because you attended a good church or had a solid family or in Paul's day were an Israelite as he was. The antidote to hypocrisy is this, number two, to recognize that God is an impartial judge. When He looks at us in eternity, when He looks at us in judgment, He's going to look right at us, right at you, right at me. There's going to be no comparison. We're not going to bring anything with us that impresses Him He's going to look at his standard of righteousness and the way that we lived, and he's going to draw the right and just conclusion. And if we really got that, we'd be shaking with fear. We don't get it because we keep comparing with the sinners around us. But if we take this to heart, we recognize that God is an impartial judge and that we must not presume upon our religious education. If we really get that, then we know we stand before God and we are in big trouble. That's what Paul is striving to make clear. Don't forget, this is a frustration of looking at just a portion of the book. Don't forget, this is the good news. But you can't get to the good news until you realize how terrible the future is for you. On your own, in your own strength, you're looking up at that 100-foot wall of smooth rock. You've got to get there before you can grasp the salvation that He offers. He's an impartial judge, don't ever forget What Paul teaches now, verses 12 to 16, would have been quite shocking to the Jews of his day. But in stating his thesis, we are counseled to rightly orient our lives. As we weed out, as we put to death judgmental hypocrisy, thirdly, we must orient our lives to obeying God's will. This is now to be the orientation of our lives, to obey His will. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, but all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This summarizes Paul's burden here throughout the passage. Without the law. Who is that? Who's without the law? Who's without the law are are the Gentiles. They don't have a Bible. They can't read the Hebrew Scriptures. They're without the law. Those who are with the law, those who have the law, are the Jews who were the privileged recipients of God's written Word. So we go back to our parable. William went to Yale. Very educated. Knows how he's supposed to handle himself. Jack, no education at all. But both of them failed. So with or without the law, the judgment will be the same. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Again, this is not saying we can be justified by our works, but only that we must. Paul says only that the standard of justification is righteous living. But the life pursuit that we see here, what a key phrase in the New Testament. Verse 13, to be doers of God's word. 
not just hearers of that word. We find numerous warnings about this in the scriptures. The great danger of church attendance, the danger of your being here today is that you're hearing the word. Now that's the great blessing of your being here as well. But if it ends there, the danger is you are here hearing the word. We have to do it. We need to carry it out into practice. We need to obey what God has said, not just pack our heads full of facts. Now, you can't go anywhere without those facts. But it's the doing, the obedience that is vital. Paul says something now again that the Jews would not have appreciated as he speaks in verse 14, taking that forward. So verse 13, don't be hearers, be doers, for... When Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the Mosaic law, they don't have the Scriptures, when they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now what's Paul saying? Is Paul saying that having the written Word of God is not a big deal, marginally helpful, but if you have general revelation, you've got everything you need? Is that what he's saying? Not at all. Nothing that Paul ever writes would indicate that having the Bible is a small thing. What he is saying is that made in God's image... Those who know not Christ, Gentiles who know not the Bible in any way, do have a conscience. Most unbelievers have some sense throughout the world, not all, but the vast majority have some sense that murder's not a good thing. There's something wrong with murder. Their conscience will often accuse them when they steal or lie or dishonor their parents. Their conscience will approve or disapprove of their actions. It won't be perfect, but they'll have some sense that this is a good thing or that this isn't a good thing. So going back to the parable, at the negotiating table in Deadwood, Jack wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was in a situation he wasn't trained for whatsoever, but he had some sense he had to treat these people decently. Now, he had treated most of the town indecently, but when he got to that negotiation, he knew he had to kind of act a little nicer. Something just told him that. Not his training at Yale, he couldn't even read. But something just kind of told him he needed to be nice here. That's the idea. It's possible for someone who has the illuminating truth of God's Word to disobey it, and it's possible for someone who does not have that Word to respond to conscience and obey it. Don't get the wrong idea. It's not that God's written Word is a small thing. It's just to say the unbeliever can respond to conscience at times and do better than the believer who has the Word and disobeys it. By the way, sideline off a sideline off a sideline here, but is that ever important for evangelism? There's, there's, there's some confidence here. We have a bit of a cheat sheet for us here to say that unbeliever that you talk to about Christ who has no time of day for your religion and your way of thinking, that unbeliever has a conscience. 
And what God tells us here is that that conscience is saying, good boy, bad boy, good girl, bad girl, all the time. All messed up. It's not formed as it ought to be. It doesn't always carry forward the way that it should. Sometimes when it ought to be screaming, don't do that, it says nothing. And sometimes it even sends messages that really aren't very accurate. But all that being said, the unbeliever has a conscience. And as verse 15 makes it clear, that conscience is always accusing or excusing. That is, approving or disapproving of their actions. It makes sense. It's a pretty simple point. But sometimes, under the direction of conscience, an unbeliever can do better than a believer who's disobeying the word that he or she knows very, very well. Connecting it then to this phrase in 16, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's a bit of a complicated phrase, but I think uh, let's take my gospel first of all. That is his gospel in one sense. The good news I have been entrusted to proclaim. The point is this. God will judge even the subtle decisions people make in violation of their conscience. Again, if we grasp that, it will cause us to fear. To think that God will know the secret of my mind, that my conscience said, you better not do that, and I did it. He will hold me accountable for that. There is a beautiful, beautiful name that is here in verse 16, and that is Christ Jesus. It's subtly just kind of feathered in there, just sort of set out on the table without saying much about it. The idea is probably that God the Father will judge people through the work of the Son as the good news teaches. But this subtle reference to Jesus that Paul tucks in here is a foreshadowing of the good news that Paul preaches. He first is working to get everybody totally lost. Completely lost in sin. The godless one without the word the moral religionist that seeks always to do what the Bible teaches. He's seeking to bring us all to the place where we recognize that we cannot please God in our own strength. But here's the beauty of Christ Jesus in verse 16. At the end of it all, you're going to face Him. You will face Him in judgment, but going into that day, you can know Him as Savior. He doesn't say anything about that yet. That's not His purpose at this point. But it's laid out there for us. Morally speaking, we are the ones who have fallen into the hundred-foot crevice. We must climb out to enter God's presence, but we can't do it. Jesus can, however. He's provided a way to carry you out to safety by paying the punishment of our sin, by giving us eternal life as a gift. So the way out, he's pointing us here, is faith. More on that to come as the book unfolds. But it's not going to be by our works that are indeed what is going to be judged. It will be by the works of Christ and by faith in Him.
just a few thoughts here as we finish this section. There's a lot of loose ends. I mean, the subject of chapter 2 carries right through to the end of the chapter and really carries through into the, uh, toward the end of chapter 3 before it moves into chapter 4 with the answer. So we a lot of loose ends here. We have to understand that. And you see how the argument just continues in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know His will, you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you are... You yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Will you preach against stealing and do you steal? You see, he just car- he's carrying on here to bring this moral person, this Jew who has the Scriptures, to account and to recognize his or her sinfulness. It's all headed to 3 in verse 19. No one will be justified by works of the law. So Paul is carefully disavowing religiously knowledgeable people. People who know the Bible. People who strive to follow God. He's disavowing them of the idea that the standard of righteousness necessary to please God is something I can attain. His trajectory here is toward all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amazing connection. Think of verse two or verse seven in chapter two, two seven. Those who pursue glory are saved. But chapter three, verse twenty three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the pursuit is right, but the accomplishment of it never follows, not in our strength. But at this early stage of the argument, Paul labors to help moral, religious, Bible-reading people, people who pray, who see that their heritage is good here. He wants them to know that's not going to get you to God. Having the Bible, knowing what it says, will not get you into heaven. Your salvation does not depend upon being better than other sinners around you. It does not depend on agreeing with God that sin is sin. All of those are good things. But Paul also warns us against then the belief that God will overlook my sin at the last day since I'm among His people. There's a warning here for us who are religiously trained. It's not good intentions. It's not verbal confessions. It's not religious practices or family heritage that justifies sinners. It is only Christ. It's only Christ. So, moving out of those temptations that cling to all of us, we need to avoid the death trap of religious presumption. Recognize that God is an impartial judge and orient our lives to obeying God's will. Much of the rest of the book will help us to understand how I obey God's will as a sinner. What is the answer? Where is the hope in this? Leading us all again here, setting us up in 117 for the life of faith. 